0: Bible says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in others' men's matters. Yet, if any man suffers as a Christian, now I want you to hear me real quick. There's only a few times, three times in Scripture this word is ever used, okay? And all three times is in relation to suffering due to persecution. All three times. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be for them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you'd manifest yourself in this place tonight. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit for your glory, Father, that uh, you would impress these truths upon our mind and upon our hearts. And Father, let us see the gravity, the seriousness of what you are doing and what you will always do amongst your church. And Father, I'll thank you and I'll praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, you know, there's many ways in which God wants to manifest himself through you and through me to a lost and dying world. I mean, the life of the Lord Jesus lived out through you. Of course, obviously, is the greatest way in which God wants to manifest Himself. As people see the character and nature of the Lord Jesus lived out through you, it always speaks to a lost and dying world. I mean, this is the principle of John one: God, who cannot be seen, was seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you say, well, how are people to know God now? Well. The same thing, God who cannot see, be seen is, won't be seen through the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Jesus Christ is not here yet. No, he's not here right now bodily, but he's here in many bodies. Amen. And therefore, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ through you that people understand the character and nature of God. And as they see the character and nature of God, they see themselves. 1 Corinthians 4, that when we are blinded by the God of this world, Remember what the Bible says. The only way that you and I get deliverance from being blinded by the God of this world is it said unless the light of the glorious glory of the gospel or the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ should shine. And so therefore we see him for who he is and when we see him for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. And that's how God works. And God works in so many ways. But can I tell you, one of the ways, and what we're going to see in this text tonight, is one of the ways that God helps the lost person to understand their need and what's ahead of them if they don't repent is through persecution. Because it's through persecution that, guess what? The lost world sees what a genuine Christian looks like. Because I promise you, in the midst of persecution, you're not going to fake through it. I mean, you're not going to wear a pretender's mask through persecution. And so when, in days of persecution is when the world really sees who the church really is. And when the world sees who the church really is, they're going to see who Christ really is. And when they see who Christ really is, they're going to know who God really is. And when they know who God really is, they're going to see who they really are. And so God uses... Listen. The places in this world that Christianity is growing the most are the places in this world where persecution is the greatest. I mean, you can go across this globe, and I can show you place after place where God is just manifesting himself in unbelievable, unique ways, and it's all because that when the Christians are being persecuted, they stand and they continue to be faithful to the things of God, and the world looks at that and says, there's something different about that person. Well, that's what this text is really about. And so, I want you to see this because I want you to see a few things. Verse 15, I'm just going to touch on verse 15 because we've dealt with it previously in 1 Peter, but the caution concerning suffering. We remember earlier in 1 Peter, the Bible was very clear that we're, not, we're to suffer. If we suffer, we're to suffer in the name of Christ, for the gospel's sake. And we're not to suffer by our own doing. In other words, as an outflow of our own doing. And you say, why is that? Because, listen, the lost world already knows what that looks like. I mean, you find people in in the world today, they get caught doing something. It's amazing how repentant they want to be. But they're just repentant because they got caught. They're not repentant because they really and truly want to change. And so lost world knows what that looks like. So he, he cautions these believers, listen, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer because of your own evil deeds. But then when you get to verse 16, he begins to undress or unlock these great principles that I think are some of the most important principles for the church today. Now you say, why do you believe that? Well, because this. I don't believe we understand how God works within His church. And I don't think we understand how God works for His church or through His church. And if we understand that, we're going to understand a lot of what God's trying to do to a lost and dying world. And so so what we're going to find here in verse number 16 is the command concerning suffering. Notice what he says. If, since, or yet, if, or yet since, any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. Now, here's the first thing, the manner of suffering, as a Christian. Now, as I said earlier, there's three times in which that word is used. The first time, listen, it was given to the disciples or the apostles uh, as a derogatory term, as a term of derision. And you say, where was that? It's found in the book of Acts, and it says that Antioch, When they came to Antioch, it says the Antioch or the people of Antioch said to them in literally a reviling way, who do you think you are? Christian. In other words, the word Christian comes from the word Messiah. It comes from the word of of, of a likeness too. And so what it has the idea of is, who do you think you are? Christ. I mean, that's what they were saying. The second time it was used was with Agrippa. If you remember Paul's confrontation with Agrippa, and Paul confronts Agrippa about his sin and gives Agrippa his testimony, and as Agrippa hears what Paul has to say, Agrippa, in again derision, tongue-in-cheek, here's what he says, Thou almost persuaded me to be a Christian. And so these are the three times. The third time is here. And again, it has to do with persecution. Now, here's the thing. What the world intended to be a statement of derision, we have taken and made a banner of love. And listen, it's a good thing if you truly say you're a Christian. But can I tell you what's better than that? When you live like one. Because I want to tell you, a lot of people lie. You can say you are a Christian but not have any looks that match who you say you are. And so what he's saying here is, is these believers, since you are suffering as a Christian, this is the manner in which they're suffering. Why? They are living out the character and nature of the Lord Jesus, and as they're living out the character and nature of the Lord Jesus, just as they treated Christ and the Gospels, they're treating these Christians. Because I promise you, As I said this morning, the world is not against you. The world is against Christ. And so all persecution is about Christ. It's not about you. But when you and I display who Christ is, the world will not like it. And so this is the manner of their suffering as a Christian. But notice the mindset in suffering. Let him not Be ashamed. Now you say, well, why would he include this in here? Because it is very easy for our flesh that in the moments of suffering and trials, and and in, in this case, persecution, it is easy for us to begin to allow that to bring some sort of shame in our own way of thinking. But can I tell you today, After what we looked at this morning in verses 12 through 14, how many of you agree? Not only should we not be shamed when we're persecuted, we ought to rejoice and understand we're blessed when we're persecuted. And that's what we looked at this morning. And so he gives this manner of suffering, but then he gives this mindset. Listen, an unsaved people have a present that is controlled by their past. Y'all understand that? In other words, because of who they are is the basis of how they live right now. The past fact of who they are controls how they live now. But can I tell you, for a Christian, it's totally opposite. And you say, what do you mean? Because for a Christian, our present is controlled not by our past, by our future. In other words, we look to the heavenly truth. We look towards the hope. of of the glory that we have in Christ Jesus. We look for the fact that as he started it, he'll finish it. We look to the fact that, listen, as we looked at this morning, when he is revealed, we will share in his glory. And therefore, guess what? If you see it from that fact and you see it from that perspective, not only will you not be shamed when you go through tough times, you will, as we talked about this morning, you'll be able to rejoice. And so, so we need to understand what Peter is writing to these believers in their suffering. Well, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, we also will, he will deny us. Now, why is this important? Because it filters into what's in verse 17. Because one of the things you need to understand, sometimes the world wants to see how genuine we really are. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Only a Christian that is genuinely born again, surrendered through faith and repentance, will stay faithful in the midst of hardships and persecutions. Someone that puts on a mask will not stand strong in those times. And so this is what he's saying here. Don't be ashamed. Now, notice thirdly the motivation through suffering. So as we suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, what is he saying here? Simply this. That as we suffer as a Christian, just letting Christ live his life through us, he said here's ought to be our motivation. That in the midst of this, God is glorified in behalf of what's going on in our life. Now, guys, listen. I understand that like what we talked about this morning goes against the grain of what's being taught in America. And I know that. But I I, I can't articulate what I said this morning any clearer than what I tried to articulate it this morning. But folks, here's the reality. When you're going through tough times, whether it's persecution or just trials and tribulation, okay? Here's the thing. Here's the test of where you're at in your Christian walk. In the midst of that, how you respond is your response glorifying Him. Because that's the test. Is my response in the midst of what I'm going through? Is it glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ? And so this is the principle here. And so when we see this, we see the caution, then we see the command. But now I want you to see verse 17 and 18, the certainty concerning something. When you get to verse 17, one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied passages in all of Scripture. Because it says, for the time is come. Let me paraphrase that for you. The time is at hand. It's here. And he's saying that in Peter's day. So how much more today? The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, the better translation of this is translated this way. That judgment must begin from the house of God. Now, I'll explain that in just a moment, okay? But here's the thing. What does this mean that judgment must begin at the house of God? Well, remember the context. Context is suffering through persecution, suffering through trials and tribulations. And so whatever this judgment is, it has to be enfolded into that context. So here's what it means, okay? It's going to deal with two things. Number one, God's work among the family. Because the word house of God is the word family. The family of God. And so God is at work amongst the family of God. But now, don't be shocked when I say this. But God is at work in the midst of judgment in the family of God. Now, but understand this. Judgment here is not talking about condemnation judgment. It's not talking about the same judgment a lost person would have. So what is it dealing with? Well, the judgment here is simply this, that God is allowing these things to take place among the church or in the church, i.e. persecution, suffering, trials, and tribulations. And he's allowing these things to take place. Why? Because how God deals with the church greatly will reveal to the lost how God's going to deal with them if they don't repent. So in other words, God's not going to deal with the lost if He don't first deal with His family. If He don't deal with His children in righteousness and holiness, I promise you, He's not going to be able to deal with the lost in righteousness and holiness. And so God deals with His children. As God deals with His children, then from that judgment comes how God deals with the lost. And so, listen, the greatest testimony to the lost world is how God's dealing with you. Because if God's dealing with you in a certain way, it testifies to the world, hey, if God would allow this in His own children, how in the world as a lost person am I going to escape? And that's the message that's being sent here. And so, so what is God's purpose in allowing these things in or to the church? But let me give you two things real quick. The first thing is this. It's a purifying word. How many agree today that sometimes when we look at trials and we look at trouble, we look at it and say, wait a minute, I, I just... God, would you just protect us from this? Well, I've got news for you. You should not pray God protect you from that. Why? Because God may have a purpose in it. Now, here's what we ought to pray. God, would you protect me in it, not from it? Or... Lord, would you so work in a way that you can accomplish whatever you need to accomplish in me no matter what that means for me. Now here's the thing. How many of you agree God deals this way? All right, what would have happened if Ruth's husband had never, been, never died? She would have never met her kinsman and redeemer. And she would have never been part of the lineage of Christ. What would have happened if Joseph was never treated by his brothers the way Joseph was treated, sold into slavery, thrown in a pit, cast into prison, what would have happened? Well, guess what? God accomplished his divine purpose by bringing Israel to Egypt where they could grow and prosper in the most fertile land and become a mighty nation by God allowing affliction in one man's life. But let's bring it down home. What would have happened if Jesus would have never suffered on the cross? You see, we look at suffering from the wrong perspective, folks. We need to look at suffering as this is a tool. Are y'all hearing me say amen? Of God's grace. It's just as much grace that God saved you as it is that God would allow you sometimes to go through trials and tribulations. It's a tool of God's grace. Now, so what is God doing? Well, two things. A purifying work. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. Here's what it says. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Here's the thing. When God allows these things in the church, when God allows these things in his children, his family, here's what he's doing. He is doing a purifying, sanctifying work in your life and my life. In other words, listen, in those times, as we talked about this morning, in those times it's when God is trying to bring us to a deeper place of dependence and trust and faith in Him. But God is trying to chip away at you everything that don't look like Him. And He's trying to do that every single day of your life. Listen, the day God saved you, he went about to conform you into the image of Christ. And as I've said to you once, and I've said it a million times, he's going to conform you in the image of Christ if you're saved. And he can do it the hard way or he can do it the easy way. Y'all hearing me say amen? I mean, this is God's plan for you and me. And so God's always doing a work of purification in us. He's always chipping away at us. He's always doing this work of sanctification. And so God allows these things within the church and God utilizes these tools of grace within the church that he can purify his people. But here's the other thing. It's not only a purifying work. It's a purging work. You see, you have to put the historical backdrop into place here because many in that day, many apostates in that day were beginning to line themselves up with the church and calling themselves Christian. And so now the true Christian was was suffering and going through persecution, and they were standing up tall, faithful in the things of the Lord. But at the same time, the world was beginning to get mixed signals because there was others that were identifying themselves with the church but yet in the midst of persecution, they were caving in. They were compromising. They were turning their back on Christianity. But yet still wanted to be labeled with Christianity. And all of a sudden, a mixed signal was being sent out to the world. Now, let me ask you a question today. Y'all are gonna let me say amen? Is the world getting a mixed signal today about the church? You know why Christianity is growing so much in nations where persecution is the greatest? Because nobody can be a pretender. And so, folks, listen. Sometimes God will allow this to take place, to sift out the true from the false. Because if I said it again, I'm going to say it again. In the midst of persecution, the false will not stand. Faithful. They can't. And so God's doing a purifying work. God's doing a purging work. This is the way God is working within the body. You say, well, did God do this in the Old Testament? He did. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Let me read it to you real quick. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide in the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and listen and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord the offering in what righteousness. The Bible says when the Lord comes will he found one faith. You see God's in a work of purifying and purging the church. Now I'm going to make a statement here, and I know when I make these statements, it makes people mad, but guess what? The Bible says you've got to love your enemy. (laughs) Amen? I believe COVID was God's provision to start purging the church. The start. But guys, I want you to hear me. We live in an atmosphere today That if something doesn't change, true persecution will find its ways to the door of the church. And if that day comes before the Lord comes back, we're going to find out what happens. Because we live in a day today just because of COVID. The churches have for sale signs in their yards because they've never recovered from the people that left the church because they were afraid of getting sick. I just read this last week. Right now in America, there are more churches closing per week on average than 5 years accumulated per week. If you take 5 years of that week of that year for 5 years add them together, there's more churches closing per week today than there has been 5 years added together on the same week. There's a purifying work. There's a purging work. That's how God deals with his family. So if God's work among his family is that, then what's God's work among the faithless? Watch what he says. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely or by trials or by troubles, in other words, in difficulty, be saved. Here's what it says if the righteous has to go through difficulties as a believer, where shall the ungodly and the sinner be? So I want to give you a couple of things here. The first thing is this, a perilous thought. So when I made this statement, that it's translated this way, that judgment comes from the house of God, what I'm saying is this, is how God deals with His church manifest to the world how God's going to deal with them. So in other words, if God's not going to let His church... How many agree today God don't let His church get away with sin? How many agree God convicts, chastens? God will call you home. Called the sin unto death in the Bible. All right? So if God deals with His church that way, then what does that say to a lost person? See, this is, what's, this is what this text is dealing with. So, so let me give you a couple things. You have a perilous thought. Look at bottom verse 17. If it begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Now I want you to see the wording here. It, said, it doesn't say trusted in the gospel of God. It's so obeyed not the gospel of God. You say, why didn't he use the word trust? Y'all going to love me? Say amen. Simple belief from a head knowledge does not save anybody. Biblical belief, as used in Scripture is the word "pestuo." it means a faith that produces surrender. So in other words, when God saved me, I did more than just trust Him. I trusted Him and He enabled me to obey. He enabled me to repent. How many you agree with that Say amen? He enabled me to surrender. He enabled me to yield. And so he says, What shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? It's a perilous thought. Perilous thought for who? For them. Not for us, for them. So if God's going to deal with his church in the way he deals with his church, what do you think the end of them is going to be that will not obey the gospel? It's perilous. But notice 2nd, well, let let me show you a passage real quick. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Look what it says in verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in the churches of God for your patience and faith and your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. There it says it. He's using tribulations and persecutions and a manifest token of the righteousness of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which you also what? In other words, it proves you who you are. Seeing it is a righteous thing that God to recompense or allow tribulations to them that trouble you, being the lost. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let me tell you something, folks. There are degrees in hell. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It's not that people go to hell and everybody endures it in the same way. There are degrees in hell. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus said this, it'll be worse for Tyre and Sodom than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, why was it worse for Tyre and Sidon?" Because Jesus Christ walked among Tyre and Sidon. Jesus Christ did miracles among Tyre and Sidon, And they rejected him. Sodom and Gomorrah never saw the physical Lord Jesus walk among them. And therefore, the memory, here's where the degrees come in. The memory in which a person will have for all of eternity. And the memory will be the place of torment. The memory will be the degree of torment. And so every, listen, every lost person, will remember every word, every time the gospel was presented to them for all of eternity. And those that persecute the church will remember every person they persecuted and how every true believer that was persecuted stood up and looked back instead of responded in flesh and graced them instead of responding in anger, they will remember every testimony they saw and every word they heard. That's what this passage is saying. It's a perilous thought. It's a problematic thought. Look at verse 18. If the righteous scarcely... In other words, I, I told you a minute ago, if, this is a quotation for Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth. Which means what? Behold, the righteous shall be those that get their due or have to endure some hardship on the earth. Much more the wicked and the sinner. So he's quoting... Proverbs eleven thirty one, 31. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly in the of it? So can I tell you today how you and I respond in the midst of trouble it sends a message to a lost and dying world of who Christ is and who we are. And here's the message it sends us. that if God allows his children to go through tough times, to purify, to sanctify, to draw them closer to himself in dependence and faith. And I've rejected this very Christ that they say has saved him. And if Christ deals with his beloved that way, out of love, are y'all hearing me? Christ deals with his children this way out of love because he knows that's what's best for us. How many of y'all want to grow? How many of y'all want to be purified? How many of y'all want to be sanctified? Then a lost person looks at that and says, wait a minute. I thought if I was good, God would just give me a path. No. Well, let me show you fourthly and lastly tonight the consecration in suffering. Look at verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him. Let me just run through four quick things with you, the recognition required. We suffer according to the will of God. If you don't recognize that, it will dismantle you when you suffer. Now, guys, listen. I've said this to you a million times, but I'm going to say it to you a million more. Nothing happens to a child of God unless it is either permitted or initiated by God. Nothing. The rest that is required. Therefore, commit the keeping of your souls to him. The word commit here. It's the same word used the Lord Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Same Greek word. What does it mean? It's a banker's term. Here's what it means. I deposit my soul into his will keeping. How many of you agree today that when you go to the bank, you get paid? How many of y'all get paid this week? Raise your hand. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the bank, right? Or you're going to go online. Some of you have that app now that you can deposit through your phone. But whatever you're still depositing what you got paid for your hard work and you're entrusting it unto an institution so let me ask you a question when you deposit your check right after you deposit let's say you walk in the bank you hang it to the teller you have a deposit slip you have your check you sign the back of the check she puts it in your account she rent, prints off this little paper says here's what's in your account When you walk out the door, do you you walk out the door and go, Oh, no. What if they lose it? Why do you not do that? You don't know anything about that. In other words, you've deposited into a place that you fully trust with it. You fully trust when you have to go next week and pull that same money out. It's there. So why shouldn't we fret when circumstances come? Because I promise you, if you can trust your money with a bank, you can trust your soul with him. Amen. Boy, that takes the worry out of Christian living, it? You see, there's a rest. That's required. Job chapter 13 verse 15. One of Job's friends came to him. Just gave him a hard time because of what he's going through. Cursed God and die. This is what Job said. Though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. In other words, to deposit yourself into his care means no matter what he allows in your life. How many of y'all have to do things you don't want to do? Anybody besides me? Is God the same God in those things? How many of you go through things you don't want to have to go through? Is God the same God in those things? Thirdly, the response required. Commit the keeping of your souls to Him in what? Well-doing. What does that mean? If I've deposited myself unto Him in the midst of my trials and troubles, and I've entrusted myself unto him. And guess what? It's not going to change one lick of my obedience and faithfulness to him. Let me put it to you another way. I'm going to keep keeping the course. I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to throw my hands up. I quit. No. I'm going to stay faithful to the lastly, the reverence required. As unto a faithful creator. It intrigued me as I was studying this passage out. Why did he use the word creator? I mean, why didn't he use the term Lord, Father, God? Jehovah, Yahweh. How many agree? All those would have fit five. But why did he use the term creator? Very rare that Paul or Peter would ever use this term. Here's the reason. As creator, how many agree? It magnifies the power of God to accomplish his will and do his plan. So now let's go back. I'm suffering as a Christian, but it's the will of God that I suffer. I'm entrusting myself unto Him who's more than adequate to take care of me. I continue to do the will of God. I continue to do well. Why? Because I am... Committing myself to him who has shown his all power in speaking and the world that wasn't, was. That's a pretty good place to be. What do y'all think? That's the reason he used the word. Because no word magnified the power of God more than creation. So I'm not entrusting myself to someone that can. I'm entrusting myself to someone that will. Because he can. Amen. Amen. Father, I come to you tonight and I thank you. Father, for this passage and I thank you that Father... You're always at work within your children, always at work within your church, always at work within your people. Father, to purify, yes, but in some cases to purge. And Father, you are always gracious, you're always merciful, you're always faithful. Father, I thank you that no matter what comes my way, even though sometimes in the midst of circumstances, we're easily to forget And we're easily to worry, fret, wring our hands, throw our hands up, what do we do? And Father, in those times, we just forget that we are to yield ourselves unto you, the faithful creator. We're to deposit our lives. They're in your hands, not ours. They're not in the hands of our circumstances. They're in the hands of a mighty creator, you. And you're sufficient. You're enough. Father, help us to remember this. Because here's the reality, Father. There's probably people in this church going through unbelievable times, even right now. And they need to be reminded of this truth. But, Father, here's the truth of the matter. Even if there's somebody in this church not going through any hard times, Father, your word says there's going to be times. Father, maybe you're trying to prepare them for those times. So, Father, that a lost world would know that in your grace, only by your grace, that we can stand up and stay faithful, rejoice in the midst of trials and tribulations in our life. And the world sees you at work, and the Lord sees how you work, and the world sees how you enable your children to be faithful and to not be someone whose joy has just been zapped out of it. someone who's looking for a, a demon behind every bush. Someone that's always walking on eggshells. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? But someone that's just willing to say, Lord, the day, I, day you saved me, I deposited myself unto you. And you've been more than faithful. You've showed yourself more than faithful every day of my life. And Father, in the midst of this trial, I thank you today that you're the safest safety deposit box there's ever been made for you are God, the mighty creator. And nothing's going to happen to me unless you permit it or unless you initiate it. Father, let us remind ourselves of that. Let us encourage ourselves in that. For your honor and your glory, in Jesus' name, and all God's children said,